Hi everyone, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. Um, first of the week was by Maria Tanyag of the uh, uh, Australian National University, ANU, um, on how does feminist research benefit work around the climate crisis? Um, and she identified three feminist specialities, if you like, characteristics of feminist research, which carry across very naturally to thinking about uh, how to confront the climate crisis. The first was intersectionality, the idea that everything's interconnected, that you can't uh, separate a complex system into a set of separate components and just treat them in isolation. And, and so in that sense, the intersectionality, which feminists have been talking about for decades, naturally fits into systems thinking and interconnectedness within climate responses. The second one was the ethics of care that, you know, the, the feminist research think a great deal about well-being, about the, you know, the personal is political. And, and, and um, she identifies this as a bit of a gap in the, some of the quite sort of... Uh, unhuman discussions of mitigation and adaptation as technical challenges and she thinks that bringing the ethics of care into those discussions of mitigation of climate change and adaptation to climate change could be a big contribution and then the third one is that um, feminist scholarship naturally kind of brokers between if you like helicopter knowledge knowledge from above and grassroots experience and the, the voice of people on the ground which has to be part of designing the response to climate change and climate crisis. Uh, so useful sort of reflections there. The uh, second post of the week was by Thea Hillhorst and Isabel Deport from the Institute of Strategic Studies in The Hague. And they were, it was pegged to a discussion in the Dutch Parliament uh, on uh, uh, this week, which illustrates a wider problem, which is that the, the move towards counter-terrorism legislation, which has been um, on a roll really ever since 9-11, sort of 18 years ago, um, the move to counter-terrorism legislation has had a really disastrous unintended consequence, which is a serious and damaging impact on humanitarian aid and humanitarian response. Um, so Thea and Isabel give us their example, uh, as an, uh, just one example among many, the 2011 drought in East Africa where Ethiopia and Kenya were able to respond really well, but 260,000 people died in Somalia. Now, in part, that was because there was a civil war going on, a conflict going on, and um, it was very hard to get aid to people and help them, but also it was because counter-terrorism legislation made it much harder. And they say that you know, Yemen is a kind of another illustration of, what, uh, of this problem. And they, they sort of encapsulate it very nicely by saying there's a massive difference between counter-terrorist sort of thinking and humanitarian thinking. Humanitarians say, where does it hurt? And the counter-terrorism question is, which group are you from? And I thought that, that summarized it very well. Um, they, the, there's a survey conducted last year which identifies many problems, but there's three of the main ones. Banks and financial companies are very, very reluctant and fearful to get involved in this stuff, which makes it much harder to transfer money into um, these kind of dangerous places. And you end up with people carrying large amounts of money in briefcases through war zones because they can't transfer it through through normal channels, which is not great. Um, it's very. It makes it very difficult for uh, aid organisations to talk. To, talk to armed organizations, non-government armed organizations, um, which are labeled terrorists. Now, that may sound odd, but actually in parts of the world, 
Those, play, those organizations run parts of the country. They deliver health and education. If you go to Myanmar, there are whole parts of Myanmar which are run by essentially a, a different government, a government that uh, is controlled by ethnic armed organizations. And it's become very difficult for aid agencies to talk to them, even if that is necessary in terms of bringing humanitarian response. And similarly, it's made it much, much harder to talk to work with partners um, because if the partners have been in touch in some way with organizations classified as terrorist, then that kind of is contagious to the, to the uh, international NGO or international organization that's talking to them. So it's, it has a chilling effect on partnerships. And on top of that, they now identify a new threat, which is a shift partly in response to the Syria uh, crisis of uh, powerful countries labeling whole geographies as out of bounds, not just organizations. So they're saying you can't do anything in this particular part of the world. And that's not just for aid, but that's for research too. Um, and that was the topic that was uh, causing such a fuss in the Dutch parliament this week. So sort of uh, not something that's been bubbling away for a while and is, is only seems to be getting more serious as a problem. Next up was Liz Stewart, who runs something called the Pathway for Pathways for Prosperity Commission at Blavatnik School in Oxford. And that commission has just produced its final report called the Digital Roadmap. Um, and Liz was summarizing its findings. And the, the, the bit that struck me was that this, you know, it's quite often these discussions, and this one is on the digital revolution, how to make sure that developing countries and poor communities within developing countries benefit from uh, new tech, from ICT in particular. Uh, um, and um, quite often those discussions are almost like a politics-free zone. It's like, oh, look, if we just roll out all this whizzy new technology, we don't have to worry about power and politics and conflict and struggle. And the Pathways for Prosperity Commission definitely does not sign up to that view. Um, it's saying that you know, politics is absolutely central to getting the technology into the hands of people who need it. And they talk about the need for a national compact, which is enduring. So actually setting up something like a, a social contract for technology where different groups buy in, which outlives the, the one government, one leader. Um, it's got to be driven by major, that, that compact has to be driven by um, national leaders, but also have a sort of cross-ministerial approach. It mustn't just be belong to one department. Um, You've got to make sure that donors who are supporting the spread of technology buy into that national plan, don't all come in and demand their own little badged project. They've got to, they've got to buy into the national uh, uh, agreed national plan. And then finally, there's a whole area of digital good government and uh, good governance here where um, countries should avoid the twin extremes of the China high you know, security above everything model uh, and the sort of US laissez-faire model, and they need regulation for inclusion. One of the statistics they mentioned, which struck me, was that in developing countries, 80% of the population have signal, but only 30% are using the internet. So what's happening with that other 50%? So um, there's a real question that unless you regulate for inclusion, it won't just happen automatically. So that's the findings of the Pathways for Prosperity Commission. And then the rest of the week was devoted to one of my heroes, Branko Milanovic, a wonderful Serbian intellectual who 15 years ago was kind of this guy 
toiling away in the bowels of the World Bank, doing number crunching around inequality. And he was basically the only person doing it, as far as with Tony Atkinson and a couple of others. Um, and since then, he's become a sort of global figure because inequality, his issue has come good, in part because of his work. He, he created that amazing thing called the elephant graph, which showed that the benefits of globalization since the late 80s up until the financial crisis basically went to two groups of people. They went to the, um, the rising middle class in developing countries like China, and they went to the super rich in, um, in the north, and that the poorest and the middle class and working class in the north have failed to really benefit at all. And so it produces a kind of a, an elephant-shaped graph, which has become very famous. So I did two things. I, did, I sat down with Branko, who's become a centennial professor at the at LSE, where I work, when I'm not at Oxfam. I sat down with him and just we did an interview. And I didn't want to just talk about his new book. I'll come to that in a minute. I wanted to talk about what it's like being Branko. Um, so we talked about the experience of inequality becoming your issue, of the first time he saw the elephant graph and realized just how powerful it was. Um, but what struck me most was really he's flowered. When he was at the bank, he really had to take refuge in data. He was the data guy working on inequality. But actually, that's not who he is. What he is is a real old school Eastern European political philosopher. Um, and, and he's flowered in, in, in recent years um, into a much wider critique of capitalism, inequality, different political trends. And I think he's, his blog is fantastic if you get a chance to sign up to his blog. Hugely erudite, well-read, just a lovely guy. Um, so then I, interviewed the, then I reviewed his book. So the podcast is about 25 minutes and it was just a huge fun for both of us, I think, chatting about you know, uh, the, the, the wider picture of his work. And then the book is called Capitalism Alone. Um, and it, it says that there's basically a global victory. You know, we're, we're a bit, uh, we're in one of those moments where there is no competition, that you know, everybody has signed up to capitalism, but there's more than one capitalism. And he identifies two big trends within capitalism what he calls liberal capitalism and political capitalism. So liberal capitalism, capitalism is epitomized by the United States. Uh, it's where, and, and you know, one way of looking at it is it's where economic power eventually leads into political power. Uh, political capitalism is epitomized by uh, China. And he has a fascinating theory he puts forward that the, the real impact of communism in the world, now that communism has essentially ended, was to fast forward countries from feudalism straight into capitalism by destroying the, 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 the structures of power that were present at the, at the beginning of their processes. And that's what happens, what's happened in China, what's happened in Vietnam. In these political capitalist countries like China and Vietnam, political power leads to economic power. But one, one possibility for both of those processes, economic power leading to political power and political power leading to economic power, is that they both lead to plutocracy, lead to a situation where a small number of people have both the economic and the political power. And that's one of the sort of more sort of worries uh, he's got. But just to lighten the mood, I did remember a joke that Harjun Jang told me once. Um, under, under capitalism, man exploits man under socialism or communism, it's the other way around. And the, it, it sort of reminded me a bit of that, the conversation with Branko. But I think there, he's got some big blind spots, and he actually accepts that. One of the biggest ones is 
he's still thinking like a traditional economist in an open system way that you can have growth and you can have uh, poverty reduction and you can just carry on forever and there's no problem with that. There is not a single reference to climate change or planetary boundaries in that book, which I think is a, a really serious oversight. And, and um, he's, yeah, I think at some point, if you're going to write about the future of capitalism, you have to say, what is the future of capitalism within a closed system, within a system that has limits? Because that's going to change the way that capitalism plays out, certainly going to change the, the issues of distribution and inequality. So I think he's got a big blind spot there. He kind of accepts that. Um, uh, uh, and he had a big discussion with Kay Rayworth, who's all about planetary boundaries and closed systems, um, uh, which I, I, I linked to in the post. Um, his other blind spot, I think, is, is so what? What to do about all this? Because he's got this fantastic diagnostic of what's gone wrong, what's gone right, how, how we've got to where we are. Um, but he's also, and he, he accepts this when I asked him in the, in the, in the podcast, he's actually a political pessimist. He thinks people have basically being captured by commodification, by greed and consumerism, and are not salvageable. So his only optimism is on the power of technology to find solutions to some of these problems. So when he comes down to what to do, it's pretty thin stuff. He's not arguing for major change because he doesn't think major change is possible. He's arguing for a bit more investment in education, for doing something about you know, inheritance, those sort of small, essentially big political decisions, but small compared to the, the, the scale, the epic scale of, of the book that, that goes before. Final point on that, he did accept the question on uh, the issue on planetary boundaries, and he's agreed to have a debate at the LSE with Kate, as long as I'm chairing it to make sure everybody stays nice to each other. Um, and I'm now working on setting that up because I think that could be an absolutely epic discussion. So I'll leave you with that. Have a great weekend, everybody, and talk to you next week.